straight up cavelling. Edit out a lot of the fanboying and fan. <laughs> no, I don't think we should. I really don't think we should. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Black Box Poetry Podcast. I'm Anastasia. This is our anecdote episode. You might remember that word from our last extended episode on occasional poetry. This should be kind of a bite-sized response to it. I'm joined here today by my two comrades. Introduce yourselves, guys. I am Sean Hughes, and uh, I study Victorian literature at Rutgers University. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and translator based in Bennington, Vermont. And as I said, I'm Anastasia. I study late 20th century poetry at the University of Rochester. So to begin, I'm going to ask Sean to step in here and talk a little bit about why occasional poetry made you think of Anecdote Dude. It was a good connection, but I did not see that coming. So my first thought is when I re-listened to the occasional poetry episode after a few months, I feel like I could write an anecdote poem about how weird it made me feel to listen to it. <laughs> Not only for its length, but also for the like, severe portentousness of everyone's vibe. When we were talking about occasional poetry, one of the issues that we kept addressing is the way that an occasional poem is responding to an event, uh, but it can never perfectly cohere to that event, or it's never congruent to the event that it's talking about. And in thinking about that, one of the issues that kept coming up is how the sorts of events that occasional poems respond to are so momentous. There's a huge burden to try and hold off that momentousness or to find um, a, a useful way of commenting on it that isn't just merely gesturing, but is maybe pointing at the event and adding something to it. It seems with anecdote poems, you have the opposite problem, which is that an anecdote poem, in, in my thinking, is a poem that draws attention to the sense that it's about a particular event, but the event has no sort of predefined significance. So it's not like, you know, this is what it felt like on the day that World War II was declared, or this is what it felt like to reflect on, you know, this uh, this bridge collapse. It's like, I was out walking around midtown Manhattan one day, and some things happened. And here are those things. This creates a whole different set of issues for writing a poem. And that's really what I, what I thought was a, a kind of useful contrast. So it sounds like it's more of a question of something personal or something private, something that's kind of individualized, whereas in the last episode when we were talking about occasional poetry, which was inspired by something like an, an inauguration poem, it's talking about something that's more common to like a larger population or like history or something like that, right? Yeah, and I feel like that's one of the really central tensions is that there are a lot of occasional poems that swerve into the personal or the, or the individual and... On the other hand, you can have, I think, like a poem that is anecdotal that feels like it's sort of imbued with some larger significance. And drawing that boundary often feels kind of difficult. Like when I was thinking of poems to read for this, I kept thinking of examples that were sort of in some kind of serious genre. Like they were they were really actually elegies or they were really actually like poems on the birth of someone or like really actually about some big historical event. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because one of the things that I was struggling with, so one of the first things I did, because anecdotal poetry, if you like look that, if anybody cares to go look that up in a glossary of poetic terms, you're not going to find a category called anecdotal poetry. Um, really what this is, is us riffing on the term of anecdote. And if you look up the term anecdote, which I did because I got nervous that I wasn't really sure what we were going to talk about when we said anecdotal poetry, 
an anecdote is like a short story or a memory that's supposed to be in service of some kind of point that's being made. So I think that sounds right, Sean, and that makes sense that you were drawn to these poems that felt like they were part of some sort of larger tradition, because fundamentally, that's kind of what an anecdote is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a short aside, a private aside or something, or a private story that's in service of some sort of larger point, which is interesting in the concept of poetry because it's already so small. So how do you, or does it can be longer, but generally the concept is that it's a smaller moment or a smaller thought. How do you make like a small aside in service of something that's small? So it sounds to me like the two major points that you would distill out of this like brief riff on what an anecdote is, is it's kind of got this private sense to it, maybe something we would even call like anecdotal tone in juxtaposition or in comparison to something like a larger public tone that is struck with an occasional poem. It also has this kind of possibility of maybe being in service of something larger than itself. So it advertises itself as being kind of like small or private or insignificant in order to be in service of some other larger point or a larger genre or a larger event. Anyway, is there anything else we want to throw on the wall before we continue this conversation? I'm, I'm hungry. Let's get going. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, who are we starting with? I think we're starting with me, which is, is bad because you've already heard a lot of my voice. This is a poem that struck me as being a really on-the-nose anecdote poem and not too long. There are other anecdote poems that I thought of that were kind of a bit on the long side, like In the Waiting Room. So this is called Adelstrop by Edward Thomas. Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name. Because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name. And willows, willow herb and grass and meadow sweet and haycocks dry no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him mistier farther and farther all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. So what instantly strikes me about this poem is the line that concludes the second stanza, beginning from the previous line, what I saw, line break, was Adelstrop dash only the name line break cognitively for me the poem sort of begins by challenging a habit of conventional speech where we deploy the name of a place and believe that we've conveyed the real experience of being in that place or the real complexity of that place as an empirical phenomenon you know, if I say the name of a town, that somehow signifies the town itself as a physical thing. Jack Spicer talked about wanting to put a lemon in his poem rather than putting the word lemon in his poem. When we use place names, we're trying to make a gesture like that. And this poem is demonstrating how feckless that gesture really is. Yeah. I like that you took it right to semiotics, Isaac. Like, thank you, uh, because we're already breaking down the difference between signifiers, signs, and the signified. For anybody who gets that, I'm sorry. And for anybody who wants to go Google it, I'm sorry. <laughs> but basically, uh, yeah, the idea that 
So the United States of America is just a collection of letters that we've assigned to this landmass that also includes all of the things that we think about when we think about America and apple pie and whatever. We also could have called it gobbledygook or pinwheel, but we chose the United States of America. You know, fundamentally, we could have picked any collection of letters. But there's a funny thing. There's a funny way that this becomes like, I guess it's a metonym, right? Or a synecdoche, excuse me. The word stands in for this larger concept of the place. Um, but that's also kind of how an anecdote operates, where it's like a small story that stands in for some kind of larger narrative, um, like or a small example. So it's funny that he keeps telling us to focus on the name, right? That Or he remembers the name, and the name then conjures this like larger memory. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And hence it starts with, uh, yes, I remember Adelstrop. It's using that name in exactly the way we're accustomed to use it, that it goes on to challenge. There's this great little anecdote from uh, the philosopher Stanley Cavell, where he's talking about how we learn concepts when we're learning language. And he talks about his, I think, daughter uh, being with him in New York City and saying, uh, are we in New York? And realizing that he doesn't know what, what concept his daughter is forming, whether the concept is this street corner is New York, or whether the concept is all of this stuff around me is New York, or whether it's Manhattan is New York or whether it's a political arrangement of five boroughs is New York, uh, or whether it's New York State. And there's a similar thing sort of playing out here, where at one level, he's saying, I only remember the name, and that's only the train platform, and that's only this kind of legal construction of Adelstrop. And then it keeps sort of sliding away to more and more and more things until you get to uh, two entire counties, uh, which are kind of vying in his memory to sort of pin down where he was. And yet, the names of those two counties are tied to a very experiential word. Farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. Yeah, I think one of the I, I like what you were I like what you were getting at, Sean. Like, which concept are we kind of tying the word to, or what's the kind of construction? So, one of the the thing that advert like initially is given to us is that. Uh, the thing that we're supposed to be attaching our memories to is the word. And then I like I like what you said that part of what the other thing that it might be is just this like listing, this cataloging of other things. But what the, the thing that's being kind of listed is kind of uh, sensory experiences, which is basically the inverse of something like language in a certain way, because language is so abstract and so constructed because we had to start with semiotics to get to the sensor like senses here right but basically the other thing the thing that's being oscillated between is a linguistic system the word adelstrap actually looking at the word um and the act of looking right the act of seeing or the act of hearing the steam hiss someone cleared his throat the willows and the willow herb and grass these are all things that he's looking at and that we that's not advertising the looking but the sense that's being evoked there is kind of like um a panorama or like a panning um kind of effect where we're like looking at the different plants that are showing up and then we're back to sound again at the beginning of the next stanza and for that minute a blackbird sang close by um and round close by and round him mistier there we get a synesthetic moment right because mist is something you see you don't hear it but it's, it's being used to revert back, to like refer back to the blackbird singing. And now we're getting mistier farther and farther, all of the birds. So the birds are mistier, so they're more distant. We still hear them. It's activating the sense of hearing, but it's a synesthetic moment because it's being described in terms of the visual experience. The, uh, the eye sounds in mistier and birds 
have a lovely echoing effect that's performing the mist and the distance, the sort of blurring and then realization that's happening on the level of sound. And for that minute, a blackbird sang, close by and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire. I'm sorry, I've reversed the order. They have the same I sound in them, though, so it doesn't matter that I've reversed the orders of these two shares. Yeah. And it's also, like, and it's something that Asia was getting at, that the fact that he must be looking at these things is something that kind of occurs to you incidentally. Like, the moment for me when he says, only the name, and willows, willow herb, and grass, and meadow sweet, and haycocks dry, no wit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. At some level, that's, like, a very sort of rudimentary maneuver of just sort of like, I'm going to sort of um, compare these two things and that will make them more vivid to you. But in context, what it's suggesting is the way that this person is looking around in their actual environment. So you don't realize that you're looking at the sky until you're looking at the sky. Um, It's almost like you're sort of sucked into this point of view. See, why does it work that way though? Because I like what you said that it feels like an amateur maneuver because I know normally if you just like list a bunch of nonsense, if you just list a bunch of nouns in a poem, it just becomes a bunch of nouns and like you can appreciate them for the sound, but why does this bunch of nouns become a visual experience? And I'm glad that you said that you also kind of get there. Part of it for me might be because it's being contrasted with a very clear auditory experience, but I'm curious what you guys think. Why does that become a visual experience? To my mind, the key here is the word and at the beginning of of the third stanza. Mm. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, stanza break, and Willows. Only the name and Willows is a logically contradictory statement to make. He also is incredibly fortuitous that he can go like, only the name and Willows, Willow Herb and Grass. And I don't know what Willows and Willow Herb are, but one of the cool things that happens there is Willow herb seems both like an elaboration of the previous term, but also seems like it has to be a different thing because it's a different item in a list. And so in this poem where a name is supposed to just be a name, but it keeps leading on to all these other things, there's also a way in which the plants themselves share that quality. So even the name of one plant weirdly trips over to another plant. And you can almost imagine when you're looking at a field, it's often very difficult to sort of determine what is the boundary between one plant and another plant or one kind of plant and another kind of plant? I don't want to change gears too much, but part of what I want to do is tie back to the initial point, Sean. I think somebody like give me pressure on this. So the thing that makes this poem an anecdote for our purposes is the fact that it feels personal. Part of what makes it feel personal is the fact that we're getting these kind of descriptions of a person's personal sensory experience in addition to the sense of memory or recollecting. One of the big questions I had when I was thinking about this is what is the relationship between anecdote and memory? Does memory make it feel personal? So we get that piece and memory is also inherently some sort of story and happens in kind of like narrative, a narrative arc. Is that right? Yeah. Part of the way that I think about it is that like an anecdote at some level is only an anecdote because you happen to notice it. So like, a story tends to have the quality of like, there's enough there that it feels like, oh, it has a beginning and a middle and an end or something notable happens where anecdotes often have that quality that their main function is a thing that's noticed for the sake of noticing them. 
they have that kind of casual off the cuff feeling to them. And here, one of the reasons this seems like such an anecdote is because this is an event, but it's only a significant event to the extent that it was perceived in this particular way. So like you can imagine a, a, a dozen other experiences of this particular delay at a train station that don't generate an anecdote poem. And here there's that sort of similar didactic quality that we were, we were seeing in occasional poetry where it's pointing at something. But here there's no sense that this needed to be pointed at until it's experienced in a certain way that makes pointing at it take on this sort of larger pleasure and, and sort of significance. What this makes me think of is uh, in Stendhal's essay about love, he uses this metaphor of crystallization where he describes uh, there was a mine shaft in Salzburg where one could lower a tree branch down to the bottom and leave it there for a while and crystals would form all over it and then you could draw it back up and take it home as a souvenir and Stendo was arguing that something about falling in love is analogous to that process because you adorn the beloved with available virtue and available beauty that is in the cosmos at large and your personal cosmos. There's a kind of crystallization here that happens around place name. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And I like what that suggests, that anecdote has this kind of off-the-cuff random feel to it, but is in its own way a sort of crystallization, which I think we might see a little bit more clearly in the next two poems. Are we ready to, like, move on, guys? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do mine next. So we're going to do Celestial Music, which is an early Louise Glick poem. For anyone who's interested, she's got a giant collected, and then because she's a boss, she then released another book, right after her collective came out. You should also buy Meadowlands and read it in one sitting. It will get you high as fuck. (laughs) That's not where this poem comes from, but you should read that one too. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so this is Celestial Music. I have a friend who still believes in heaven. Not a stupid person. Yet with all she knows, she literally talks to God. She thinks someone listens in heaven. On earth, she's unusually competent, brave too, able to face unpleasantness. We found a caterpillar dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling over it. I'm always moved by disaster, always eager to oppose vitality, but timid also, quick to shut my eyes. Whereas my friend was able to watch, to let events play out according to nature, For my sake, she intervened, brushing a few ants off the torn thing and set it down across the road. My friend says I shut my eyes to God, that nothing else explains my aversion to reality. She says I'm like the child who buries her head in the pillow so as not to see, the child who tells herself that light causes sadness. My friend is like the mother, patient, urging me, to wake up an adult like herself, a courageous person. In my dreams, my friend reproaches me. We're walking on the same road, except it's winter now. She's telling me that when you love the world, you hear celestial music. Look up, she says. When I look up, nothing. Only clouds, snow, a white business in the trees, like brides leaping to a great height, 
Then I'm afraid for her. I see her, caught in a net deliberately cast over the earth. In reality, we sit by the side of the road, watching the sun set. From time to time, the silence pierced by a bird call. It's this moment we're trying to explain. The fact that we're at ease with death, with solitude. My friend draws a circle in the dirt. Inside, the caterpillar doesn't move. She's always trying to make something whole, something beautiful, an image capable of life apart from her. We're very quiet. It's peaceful sitting here, not speaking. The composition fixed, the road turning suddenly dark, the air going cool. Here and there, the rocks shining and glittering. It's this stillness we both love. The love of form is a love of endings. I, I, I really tremendously admire this poem. I mean, this, this poem alone could support the proposition that Louise Gluck is a major poet, as far as I'm concerned. And this one is an early reasons- one. This is, like, this is like book two or three. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really... The, this is like baby Gluck. <laughs> so I think one of the reasons this poem is so impressive is to borrow a critic's response to Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. To some extent, Dostoevsky was attempting to defend religion against secularism since secularism was a a late arrival in Russia, like many other things and a very precipitous arrival. And they had to grapple with it all of a sudden. So two of the brothers Karamazov are an atheist and a man of faith. And rather than making a straw man out of the atheist position in order to defend his position, Dostoevsky makes an iron man of both of these positions he presents a very convincing, very eloquent atheist. If you want to defend religion from atheism, the atheist character can't be a straw man. He has to be Richard Dawkins on high-grade fighter pilot meth. (laughs) And you have to allow the two Iron Men to fight. And Gluck is doing that in poetry, but she's doing it from the opposite direction that Dostoevsky is. She's confronting religion from an atheist perspective, but making an iron man of it. And I I deeply admire that as an atheist who is not contemptuous of religion. Isaac, you're the best. (laughs) So my role, my role in our past lives as like babies running poetry reading group, uh, what what was the dichotomy that you used to use, Sean? So there there are many dichotomies here. Um, I think the one that you're referring to is uh, uh, you were divine Eros and Isaac was Thanatos. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So I'm going to rein us in for one second because that seems to be the theme of. <laughs> oh no, no, that's a different dichotomy. That's that's your your Apollo and he's Dionysus. Yeah. Okay. There are a couple yeah, of different here's... dichotomies. In this case, we're going to do the uh, Apollonian and Dionysian. Um, <laughs> As long as you're on the opposite side for me, I dig it. <laughs> right. So Isaac's exactly right. Uh, I absolutely agree that that's what Glick gets at. But the thing that I always remember about this poem is the torn thing, the caterpillar, because the way that Glick backs her way, Glick is absolutely talking about like Stendhal and like the two atheism versus faith in God. But the way she gets there is through... I would argue this anecdote about finding this caterpillar in the road, the torn thing, right? Which 
is really where this poem, I, I think, or at least in my memory, that's what like anchors the poem. And I think it, that is, I, I think arguably that is what anchors the poem. Yeah. So in that second stanza, the moment that caterpillar is dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling all over it. You have those two iron men, as Isaac explained, the two women in the concept content of this poem, these two like friends encountering this caterpillar and the, ju- the juxtaposition of how they both deal with seeing this caterpillar dying in the dirt right so the speaker says i'm always moved by disaster but i'm timid also and quick to shut my eyes whereas her friend is able to watch to let the events play out so their reactions to this caterpillar in this anecdotal moment this memory or this thing that's happening in real time i'm not really sure how this is happening in time becomes the way to then explain this larger concept which i mean glick manages to start from the large just like isaac kind of opened up this conversation starting from the large concept she literally talks to god she believes in heaven these are big abstract concepts and then in one stanza we are down focusing on a caterpillar dying in the dirt that is god bless my god The uh, the use of always immediately after the introduction of the image that's sort of the inciting incident of this uh, of this anecdote. We found a caterpillar dying in the dirt, greedy ants crawling over it. I am always moved by disaster, always eager to oppose vitality. There's an instant generalizing gesture. This specific instance is only allowed to exist. It's only allowed to be instantiated. It's only allowed to be singular on one line. After that line break, it immediately becomes generalized. This brings me back almost to the poem we did in the occasional poems episode, not an elegy for Mike Brown, the instant gesture of generalization. So this kind of offers a moment where anecdote offers itself as a particular in order to kind of in service of the general, right? Is that what you're kind of saying? The point I'm trying to make is that we have an image of striking singularity. The moment you read this line, you instantly encounter this caterpillar dying in the dirt in a very visceral, very experiential way. But on the very next line, there's a gesture of generalization. On the very next line, we have, I'm always moved by disaster, always eager to oppose vitality. The very next line makes this an example or index of her entire worldview. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, absolutely. And then that's exactly, that's actually interesting. So basically, Glick gives us an example of how anecdote can function in the space of two lines, right? That anecdote is this like small thing, this small story, this memory that then stands in for the larger, that then somehow explains a larger concept. Okay, absolutely. That's, yeah, she's brilliant. Okay. The other thing I think is really interesting about this as an example is it kind of suggests the way that argument and anecdote can kind of interact with each other because the anecdote at some level is working for both of the, I guess, characters in this poem differently. In the last stanza, when it says, it's this moment we're trying to explain, the fact that we're at ease with death, with solitude, there's a weird continuity there, like they're converging on one thing. And it's this shared experience while also being totally aware that their processing of it is completely different. One of them is viewing this as part of a larger dispensation and the other one is viewing it as a kind of, you know, chance act of brutality and the endless brutality that is nature. And in a peculiar way for both of them, 
the uh, attempt to find form is dependent on uh, the attempt to find limitation. So at one level, I feel like Look is holding off the appeal to the infinite by suggesting that her friend is still relying on this experience of encountering death as like the ultimate sign of finitude, which becomes this this closing claim: the love of form is a love of endings. Um, which you know, like what a what an ending to a poem, <laughs> right? <laughs> It's yeah, also like sure. a last line that refers to how good of a last line it is. I know, because she's a monster. Ah! It's a, it's a mic drop. It is. So to take us back to the, the second stanza, there's a key couple of lines there that really get at the point you're making, I think. And there's also a delicious inversion in them. Whereas my friend was able to watch, to let events play out according to nature... For my sake, she intervened, brushing a few ants off the torn thing and set it down across the road. Intervened is a freighted, significant word in this context because divine intervention is a very familiar phrase. And we have intervened and according to nature on the same line. We have uh, divine intervention and a sort of Newtonian, deterministic, godless universe that's still logical on the same line. What this makes me think of is uh, medieval maps of the cosmos would often have God's hand reaching down to tune it like one would tune a mechanism to demonstrate that there was an outside force that was intervening to keep it orderly and rational. But there's an inversion happening here because the person of faith is intervening in nature for the benefit of the sensibilities of the atheist and really how better to make the religious position an Iron Man than to have it employ its own logic to defend the sensibilities of the atheist position. That's, that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting. I mean, this is just a quick aside that there's all sorts of additional information that has to be called up. So like in the penultimate stanza, you know, she begins it by saying in my dreams, my friend reproaches me, which is in some ways kind of, you know, it's a film, it's a kind of a familiar idea that the idea of dreams in psychoanalysis is this sort of like secularization of guilt and confession. And that's a really kind of fleeting thing, but it again suggests a sort of weird convergence where the speaker, the atheist, is uh, telling us that she has this sort of strangely guilty conscience about her, uh, her atheism that she's experiencing through these dreams. And not only that, it's something that I think is suggesting this weird interaction between anecdote and argumentation that in order to really have the anecdote play out for us with the full significance that it has for the characters in the poem, there have to be these quick gestures back to like earlier aspects of their relationship. In a, in a weird way, it's almost like that moment in the, the previous poem where we know that we're looking at the clouds because we start hearing about the clouds. We know that this moment is freighted with this larger significance for their relationship because you have these sort of really quick terse references to earlier aspects of how they've how they've sort of worked this out. Yeah, that's interesting. I know I, I'm curious how this plays into what you're suggesting, Sean, because one of the things that in the context of this conversation about anecdote that's tripping me up how this functions is um the dream seems to function so we have this like extended anecdote which is almost like a parable 
and I think we should kind of talk about the relationship between anecdote and parable, but that's kind of a side point. The dream kind of seems to function is like kind of nested within the anecdote, but it's interesting the way that you're talking about it, Sean, because you're kind of almost talking about it as like a gloss on the anecdote, which seems to suggest that it sort of supersedes it. Obviously, like literally in the like line structure and the structure of the poem, it's nested within. So we almost have to like kind of go go out of the anecdote or go deeper into the anecdote to get back out and read the anecdote. I think it's very interesting that the two options you presented for describing this gesture were moving deeper into the anecdote or moving beyond the anecdote. And the fact that both of those were viable options, despite being opposite, despite being diametrically opposed in how we typically use those expressions. And yet, I viewed both of them as viable options when you advanced them is indicative of how this works, that it's just elaboration as elaboration. It's just elaboration per se, whether it's a delving or an expanding, it's still a process of elaboration in one way or another. And that's what's being called for. And it's separate from the anecdote itself, because reality, she says in the beginning of this last stanza, in reality, we sit by the side of the road. And that's contrasted with in my dreams in the penultimate stanza. So we know we're coded to understand that reality equals anecdote and dreams. Interestingly, although they have an arc and although they have a story and although they're in service of an argument, dreams are not anecdote in the context of this poem. Yeah, and I feel like generally one of the when I think about the anecdotal quality in a lot of poetry from the last 200 years, a big part of it is it's plausibilistic, you know. It's like it comes to you implying this could have actually happened even if you don't necessarily believe that it did. It often has this quality of, you know, and there it was, which I think you're right to contrast that with the the quality of parable even though in this poem the two are definitely converging. Yeah, I was going to say that, interestingly, in this in the dream sequence in this poem, it's totally believable that this could have happened. It could have been winter. I don't know. The only thing that seems crazy at first is the, are the another amazing Glick line, yeah. those brides leaping to a great height. Like, fuck you, girl. Like, are you kidding me? You just got away with that line? You bitch. The white business in the trees. <laughs> what? She didn't even need to get to a love of form as a love of ending. She could have mic dropped right there. (laughs) But she wanted to, she wanted to show us that she knew she could mic drop, but she was just going to keep going. She wanted us to to just stew in that for a minute. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, this could have been real. You know, she just tells us that it's not. I kind of basically all I'm good for now is to just like point at lines that are like mic drops yeah. before the mic drop. No, so if anybody is, has anything real really to say. Just the, the, the extent to which she is doing whatever she wants to do in this poem is just astonishing. The level of, of yeah. virtuosity that she's reached here. It's, I mean, this is to the three of us, this is the, the coolest thing conceivable but i mean this is when you see somebody who's mastered their profession to this extent it's yeah. impressive even if you're not a specialist in or admirer of that profession this is this is a poet maximizing on the things poets can do here i i feel like an aging sportscaster you know? <laughs> yeah, that's really how i feel here and i'm not even 30. this game 
All right. Okay. So on that note, I think the lesson <laughs> uh, I think the lesson we learned is Louise Glick is a boss. Go read as much of Louise Glick yeah. as you can get in your brain. But in the terms of anecdote, uh, anecdote serves for ar- serves argument. Anecdote also clearly has markers to it. We're able to like point it out and contrast it with other kinds of language. So dreams are different from anecdote. And I would even argue, I would even argue that the first stanza doesn't quite isn't anecdote yet. We don't get yeah. anecdote until the second stanza. The first stanza is declarative and kind of sets the stage for the larger discourse that the anecdote is is in service of. Any other parting shots, folks? One more Cavell. <laughs> no, and I and I am an aging sportscaster who who blew out my hamstring on the yeah. the championship game that my team won, but not due to anything I did. And now wow. I'm watching someone else win a championship game. And people tell you that like you put some points up on the board during the first half to make you feel better about yourself. You know, it, yeah, but no, that's not what it came down. Right. To. Well, yes, you're unusually able. competent, Isaac. Unusually <laughs> competent. Oh. <laughs> Oh, you cut me to the quick. Yeah. If I knew things about sports, I would do an unflattering comparison, but I can't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything you else. Like- okay. So I guess we have our last poem up next. Isaac, that's yours, right? Yes. So this is Anecdote of the Jar by Wallace Stevens. It's right there in the title. It is. And you know, Wait, as I don't a translator, get it. I don't get it. <laughs> but you know, as a translator, I, I too was struggling with how to approach this premise. And as a translator, the only solution that occurred to me was to find a superior mind grappling with it and just move that over to where I am and yeah. do that in lieu of doing my actual homework. So this is Anecdote of the Jar by Wallace Stevens. I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it, and sprawled around no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground, and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush, like nothing else in Tennessee. So to my mind, this is a poem that is the maximum case for anecdote poetry as assigning significance to something that is manifestly insignificant because the gesture of placing a jar in Tennessee, placing a jar on the ground has no inherent significance to recruit. And yet Stevens has made it a cosmic gesture in this poem. Well, in some ways, in some ways that's, that's what I mean, especially in like the last poem where anecdote is in service of a larger thesis or point the anecdote kind of becomes, it's kind of inverting the idea that evidence is in service of a point and instead kind of makes the point in service of the evidence, right? It kind of stands that point on its head, the idea of on its head. Does that make sense? Is that right? I think that's, that's the a- key issue involved, yes. Yeah, and that's a really interesting observation because I feel like in all three of these examples that we're working with, there's a really interesting interplay between these like incredibly uh, observed particulars and something that feels much more abstract and implacable. And also a lot of playing around with the relationship between ordinary speech and those like wonderful jangling sounds that you get in English where like there's all those great assonances 
a very vernacular thing that weirdly has this kind of bubbling up of sound is happening in all these. One of the glorious things about our beloved English language is that it's such a blending and melding of so many different languages. And when we talk about vernacular versus formal speech in English, often what we're talking about is Latinate versus Germanic. So in this poem, the Latinate roots are clustered around the jar and the Germanic roots are clustered around the wilderness around the jar. Even uh, when the jar is introduced, we have, I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The only Latinate word, as far as I know, there is surround, which comes from uh, uh, from super, from above originally, in fact. It went through a lot of evolution to appear in English, but it is a Latin root. And everything else in there is very Germanic. I mean, slovenly comes from a German root meaning to slip. It's actually uh, it's the same root as the word, the, the word slut. A slut is someone who puts on her clothes in such a way that they slip who dresses in a slovenly way. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, but placed is to place something is Latinate, isn't it? Is that Latinate? Let's, uh, we have, we have the internet right here. Let's find out. <laughs> I, I would add really quick that the other, like the really big outlier is Tennessee. Right. And one of the things that's kind of curious there is like Tennessee is kind of like, kind of feels like the wrong word so like i know there are definitely some readings of this that will remind you that tennessee is a native american word and that it's really playing off of like a very american sounding word but also one that feels really unspecific so he could have written a poem where he said like i went up to this specific mountain but that would be a totally different effect there's something about the kind of weird middle ground of tennessee that it's both a location and a location with a very distinctive sound to it, but also one that is incredibly aggressively unspecific that I think is really conducive to what he's doing here. So to, uh, this is a related issue, so it's not quite a digression, but to answer uh, the issue that Anastasia raised, you're, you're right. It is, it is a Latin root. I think that fits into the distinction we're drawing between uh, German and Latin though, because the act of placing the jar is very much from the uh, the realm of the jar rather than the realm of the wilderness. The act of placing it there, which has all these consequences. It's this is from the same Latin root that gave us plaza. I'm, I'm delighted yeah. to learn. Um, but to go back to, I like what you're saying. I think it's interesting that both this poem and Adelstrat both op- operate on this kind of sonic quality, which is really what you're drawing our attention to with the difference between the Latinate and the Germanic words, right? Because I placed a jar in Tennessee slips along pretty quickly. Um, and part of what made me think, what made me link those words together was the, the S sound in Tennessee with, with placed. Um, and round it was upon a hill is a much more jaunty uh, sounding line. Asks us to pay attention to those O's round upon a hill. And the way that the D and the P kind of um, have like almost like a half consonants sort of like ringing effect against each other. So it's interesting that both this poem and the Adelstrop poem both kind of require attention to the sonic qualities and that somehow plays, like activates our understanding of anecdote. And I don't really know what that relationship is. And it's also interesting that both this one and Adelstrop activate place being so 
important to anecdote, which celestial music, the middle poem, does not. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with the, that, those similarities. I'd like to zoom in on the, the first of your two points for a moment in that, that same region of the poem. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be challenged on this if you guys read it differently, but to my mind, the S sounds in the second half of the first stanza are playing a very interesting role. We have, it made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wild in wilderness is densely ringed with S sounds. The slovenly wilderness surround that hill. So what that prompts me to do is to swallow or subsume the wild into those S sounds. Well, it's D-S-D-S-D-S. It's made slovenly, willed earnest, surround. So it's D-S-D-S-D-S, which again changes the S quality so that it's not the same S quality we have in that first line. I would also add the, uh, the L sounds too, because the first two lines are like very iambic. I placed a jar in Tennessee and round it was upon a hill. And then it made the slovenly wilderness. You get an extra syllable in there on Lee. And in the next stanza, you have hill reminding you of wilderness. And so like, there's this little pileup of unstressed syllables in there that like, you're really getting your attention drawn to. And those are around those sort of like ill, like ill sounds. But yeah, I feel like one of the things that's so distinctive about the play of sound in these is it allows this poem and Adelstrop to really limit their reliance on metaphor and symbol. So like, there's still a feeling of a kind of like really sort of highly wrought, very contrived quality to these, but they also feel very kind of effortless and there's not really much density to either, I would venture to say. At least not the kind of density that, you know, you have in other poems by Wallace Stevens. Uh, so I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons that we're, we're like experiencing sound as a significant quality in, in anecdote poetry is that like it, it winds up sort of relating to that quality that we have observed where an anecdote is kind of underdetermined until it's turned into a, until it's turned into an anecdote. What's well, fascinating because that's weird, right? That is anybody else like interested in this idea that then anecdote becomes this kind of method of, in this case, then Sean, you're kind of arguing for an anecdote that kind of strips itself down um, or like creates the situation where it's um, not pointing to other significances where we're paying more attention to sound because it's supposed to exist on unto itself in some way as an anecdote. But that's, basically directly like violating how anecdote operates in celestial music where it's more like a parable which a parable is all about pointing outside of itself um, yeah fascinating yeah weird <laughs> i think it's very important that the entire inciting incident of this anecdote is confined to the first line the first line is i placed a jar in tennessee the rest of the poem is an unfurling of the consequences and significance of that gesture. So the only thing that makes this an anecdote then is that it's recounting something that happened. Yeah, and also recounting it in a way that's sort of deliberately teasing us with the sense that like this is not really a full-fledged story. Right. We talked in the previous poem about the 
gesture of elaboration being something that one can talk about as a sort of discrete idea that there's something, there are many different gestures that could huddle under the category of elaboration. I think what Stevens is doing in this poem is distilling elaboration to a pure concentrated form. Hmm. Say more. What do you mean? Yeah, wait. So the, the tentpole for that argument is really the fact that the whole story happens on the first line. Yeah. I, first word in the poem, I placed a jar in Tennessee. First Latinate word in the poem, placed. I placed a jar in Tennessee. The rest of the poem is an elaboration of the consequences and significance of that gesture, which is not satisfying as a part or whole of a narrative. It's deliberately not a functional story. We skip directly to the elaboration. The inciting incident is deliberately inadequate to the weight that the poetic argument demands that it bear. Yeah, I and I would I would definitely like build on that and say that like it's got a weird like non sequitorial quality to it, where like after the first stanza when it says the wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around no longer wild, that's like so out of whack with what came before it, and so it doesn't even it, like it really doesn't even have the quality of like parable because it's completely leaving out any logical connective of like why placing a jar on a hill changes the wilderness and so like you know it's it, it really does sort of work like a non sequitur at some level well it's interesting it, it almost employs the same trick as willow and willow herb do in uh adelstrop by stripping wilderness down just to wild i mean it makes you aware of juxtaposition in that like the jar somehow the presence of the jar somehow changes the landscape around it in the same way that the presence of the mm -hmm. sign adelstrop somehow changes or is informed by the landscape around it there's something about this kind of like one i want to say symbol even though we just said that symbol isn't the right term but like one object in this case literally in this in this instance it's an object so let's go with that um one object changes um everything that's next to it one way to elaborate on the question of the symbol might be a concept from this, this is a concept that Jordan Peterson, who's a psychology professor who gained notoriety because of a controversy that I don't have anything useful to say about, advanced this idea that in any game context, there is a game and a metagame. So he arrived at this by trying to explain a phrase that parents always say to kids, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play, which the kid can't help but view as completely meaningless because obviously it matters if they win or lose. But there's an individual game that one wins or loses, but there's also the meta game of being a good and viable player who will be invited to play again. There's sort of the, uh, the algebraic level and the calculus level of the game. There's the, the game and the derivative of the game. And what we might be dealing with here is the derivative of the gesture of deploying a symbol rather than that gesture itself, that this is not a symbol because it doesn't tap into an architecture or archetype that's already available, yet the 
work that it's attempting to do within the context of this poem is similar to the work that a symbol does. Yeah. So like uh, about an hour ago, we were talking about like romantic poets walking around on the moors, having interesting encounters with ribbons and daffodils at uh, rivers and daffodils. And this is sort of like playing with that idea, but the inciting thing is man-made. So it's totally artificial and it's placed there by the poet. So he's sort of like, you know, flaunting the way in which poets who rely on that gesture very often feel like they're kind of high on their own supply. Like they're, you know, getting really excited about something as a happenstance that's really something that they're projecting or that they contrived. And this poem is sort of taking that gesture and making it completely self-aware, where it's all about, uh, you know, going out and just sort of like, putting this piece of, of transparent artifice into the wilderness and acting as though it's this sort of like spontaneous surprising event, even though it's in a lot of ways kind of a fantasy of the poet. So I think we've talked about a lot of the first half to two thirds of the poem in a useful way, but there's a line here that we really have to confront or we have not read this poem. We've talked about this opening very interestingly, I think, I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it and sprawled around, no longer wild. The jar was round upon the ground, and tall and of a port in air. Yeah. We, we can't make any claim to have encountered this poem if we don't say something about that line. I'm so you stopped there. The next the line that it links to is it took dominion everywhere. It's a couplet split across two stanzas and tall but, and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. It took dominion everywhere is an affordance that is making the utter lunacy of and tall and of a port in air more bearable, I think. Sean, step in. Solve this. <laughs> so I I think they're connected. I've my best guess for a tall and of a port in air is it's um a jar and the jar is um is uh, upright. The, uh, the 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 opening is is uh, is up in the air. And that's referring to the sort of weird quality where like it's putting this this sort of open thing um into an otherwise open surrounding and somehow that's making the jar I don't know like full of the environment somehow. If it's a port in air, it's it's an empty jar that's open, and you know a jar being closed is significant because it's containing something. But yeah. this is an empty jar that's open. Is there any hay to be made of that? That's why the movement gets inverted in the couplet in the second half of the couplet. It took dominion everywhere because basically the beginning we're talking about a jar that then has stuff around it, and then yeah. that next the couplet inverts that so that it's a jar that kind of contains or it it somehow um yeah contains or is somehow controlling everything around it so that port in air yeah is the opening of the jar facing up and somehow the surround almost becomes goes inside of it or like not literally but kind of figuratively for our understanding they become that's, other that's piece. very that's very revelatory that's a, that's a very good reading and I would add, like, after it says it took dominion every, everywhere, the jar is no longer transparent. So, like, the jar was gray and bare. It almost becomes, like, a jar as, like, looked at in, like, a post-impressionist still life, where it's this sort of, like, patch 
of gray or, or sort of, uh, you know, like beige that represents the way that you might see light caught in a, in a glass jar. Mm. Um, I feel like, yeah, that line and tall enough important air is almost like, this is, this is maybe over the top, but you know, that's what we're here for. <laughs> it's like the jar becomes like a wormhole that in the, in the first part of it, it's this object placed in the wilderness and it, you know, you could imagine the jar being like a prism uh, that you look at the world through, but in a weird way, it becomes like this thing that because it's totally open and because there's really nothing in it, because it's like the idea of a symbol rather than a symbol, it weirdly sucks everything into it. And then at that point you look at it and you see not a transparent jar, but you see this sort of strange, you know, patch of color and light. We were talking a moment ago about, symbol and meta symbol or game and meta game or gesture and meta gesture. There's something felicitous about how the jar becomes a wormhole, but what it achieves by doing that is this impressionist effect. It Mm -hmm. achieves a sort of related effect, but not an identical one. It's not a wormhole sucking you to some other location. It's a wormhole changing the way you experience the object that's becoming a wormhole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, of a port in air, the of, similar to the and in our first poem, and willows, the of we encounter here, and tall and of a port in air, sends me to the final stanza. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush, like nothing else in Tennessee. I can't help but read those two ofs as in dialogue or in tension with one another to some degree. Yeah, because they both feel super non-standard. In a poem that feels like incredibly conversational English most of the way through, tall and of a port in air, and it did not give of bird or bush, both feel weirdly, you know, contrived. Yeah, that seems Especially since bird bird or bush seems to be pointing out to that aphorism, right? A bird in a hand is better than a bird in a bush, right? Something like that. Yeah, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Two in the bush. There we go. Whatever. Thank you. Um, which is like hyper colloquial and then becomes like very strange and, and abstracted here. Um, well, of is such a colloquial word and such a commonplace word. You know, the the number of ofs I can swallow without tasting them is is vast. It's a very simple, very readily accepted word pause please the number of ofs i can swallow without tasting them everyone else write that down in your moleskin journal okay (laughs) carry on if you don't have one get one they're they're believe the hype they're 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 the best thing you can write in or uh you can order from a a company called shinola based in detroit they'll send you basically the same notebook but it's got uh they can uh, they can monogram it for you and uh, they uh, they make a point of paying people a lot of money to make these in a place where people don't get paid a lot of money to do anything. I want to emphasize that we're not getting any promotions yet. That was no, no, no promotions. That we still like sincere. you better, Shinola. We still buy your product. Hint, hint. I, I wouldn't say no if they wanted to give me money, but I mean, I've already made a point of giving them money. But the point is the, uh, the fact that of is... The fact that of, which is such a readily digestible, colloquial, familiar Germanic word, is creating so much tension is really stunning. 
creating an effect like that with such a commonplace tool is is a, a real gesture of virtuosity that Stevens is doing here and maps onto the effect that the poem itself is creating that we've been trying to gloss. Okay, so that seems like a good opportunity to kind of zoom out for a second. I love I love the fact that we're going to zoom out from of to the larger effect of the poem. So it seems like the larger effect of the poem is kind of this question of relationality, which is really useful that it comes all the way down to the word of, which is all about, right, relationships. Um, what is of what else? So what is what is this larger effect of the poem? I mean, I like the I like the metagame idea that this is playing around with a certain kind of affected spontaneity that you see in a lot of poetry where it's calling your attention to this certain way of writing poems that is all about the kind of chance encounter or all about the sort of like experience in nature. And it's performing that as something that is like completely stage managed, but in a way that makes no sense. So like, if it were like a poem about like a dumb poet walking out in the field, uh, you know, ripping his heart out, that would be a, a kind of like on the nose satire. And you don't have to go there when reading this poem. You don't have to think about it as being a commentary on anything in particular, but it's this almost like weird act. And this is something that we've, you know, gotten out already of kind of like taking a, a familiar poetic maneuver and like kicking it up to a higher level of abstraction and what's interesting is that it doesn't do that by like creating a, like a logarithm it's not like a mathematical purification it does it by making it into a non sequitur where like stanza to stanza the connections don't really make sense there's a that's a very important distinction i think between a mathematical purification or distillation and an aesthetic or poetic one because there's a certain kinship one could assert between those two gestures, but they work in very different ways. Yeah, I think I can't get away from the way that this poem makes me think about, and I think this is basically just reiterating what you guys are saying. I can't get away from how this poem makes me think about how one thing relates to another and how one thing is smaller than another, but then can subsume Literally what's happening in this poem, right, as we discussed, is a smaller thing is somehow ordering the larger thing around it and then comes to subsume the larger thing, which in the context of our anecdote conversation is kind of in a way what happens in that celestial music poem, right, because that story about the torn caterpillar becomes kind of the larger element of a poem that's about God and belief. The caterpillar almost subsumes the story of faith which seems like a much bigger concept and almost happens in the same way in Adelstrop where the singular te- this word gets subsumed by the sensory experience around it I think the key the key gesture in the argument that you've just made that I want to zoom in on is you were pointing out how a gesture in one poem is the same as a gesture in another poem or is analogous to a gesture in another poem the idea that one poem can essentially be doing the same thing as another. I think that's the heart of the matter when it comes to this meta game or meta symbol or meta gesture idea that the logic of one cognitive activity can be transferred to another. I was recently 
translating a book review of a detective novel that compared the way the author played with the chronology of events to editing the scenes in a film. And the point that that reviewer was making is related to the point that we're making here, that you can transfer the logic from one activity to another activity intact. You can do a gesture of translation. So it seems like that's kind of... I wasn't quite following what you're talking about with metagame until now, but I think basically what that means is that's kind of our definition of anecdote, is this metagame. The, the same operation that is moving across all three poems here is basically the definition of anecdote that we've arrived at. The way that something is a smaller piece of a whole somehow kind of stimulates that engine and then and, and like in service of a larger point and then somehow subsumes that point that it's um, in service of in some way. Subsumes or kind of rises above or acts in, in like contrast to sean and the the thing i would add is that in all three cases the 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 move up has to be somewhat narrated Mm -hmm. that seems really significant that like there's no kind of like automatic way of cashing out the relationship between incredibly particular and isolated details and the kind of larger sort of mental thing being generated or emotional thing being generated there's a weird need in all three poems even if it's, you know, even if it proceeds by non sequitur or by, you know, jumps in scale to sort of like demonstrate that kind of scaling up or like worry over it or, you know, like uh, play it out. You said even, I would, I would argue, uh, especially, I think the Stevens poem is the especially that especially if it proceeds through non sequitur, that's how it has to function. And there's a, maybe even a similar thing with the look of the, the way that it has this kind of like analeptic moments of like, hey, remember this um, this thing about this relationship that you aren't part of, but if you were part of it, you would know that like we have this history here. It's doing a similar work of kind of giving you the experiential quality of something and ratcheting it up, but also sort of acting out the the kind of like moves that you need in order to make that small experience take on larger significance. I think we can close there because I think you guys have really gotten to the heart of the matter. I'll uh, just for the record, I'll state that even though I've used the distinction between sign and signifier to make an argument tonight, one should not infer that I endorse the ideas of other people who do that. Nor do I concede that the fact that a Go read mythology. <laughs> Nor do I concede that a Frenchman writing an essay that doesn't make sense means that nothing can make sense. For the record, with that, uh, I think we can close. I think we need to close with Anastasia once more yelling, "Go read mythologies!" <laughs> Go <everywhere."> read mythology. <laughs>